0: This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: Stories this week include Chauncey Gardner, Matt Kelly, Jerry Falwell, and oversight of a compliance program. What is risk-based due diligence in the financial services industry? How a banking-government partnership is being utilized to fight financial crime? Why fraud matters? Mike Wolkoff takes a look at the Steve Bannon indictment. Why the Palantir S1 appears to be like the children of Lake Wobegon, stronger, better looking, and above average. How bad was the sexual harassment on the Washington Football Club? Very bad. We're losing the war on AML. Martin Woods says yes. More on the McDonald's suit against its former CEO. Then we take a look at uh, multiple podcasts, the compliance life. Compliance and Coronavirus, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, looking at boards of directors. Then we review the podcast series, the special, leading up to my 500th episode. On Monday, August 31, will be my 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will check that out, and I hope you'll check out the series, which is run this week leading up to it. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance back again with Mr. Monitors, himself Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA episode 220, the week ending August 28, 2020, the I Like to Watch edition. And spoiler alert, this is our first non-PG podcast, so if you're listening with children under the age of 12, please remove them from the room at this time. So with that, we channel our inner Chauncey Gardner with his signature line, I like to watch, which we will explain more in depth. We both continue to brave the surge in COVID cases by staying safe at home. The hurricane did not hit Houston, so I didn't have to worry about being safe there. And we also took a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics articles and stories which caught our collective eye.
0: So, Jay, what say you? I say we can't go all the way to an R, but let's do PG-13 and see what we hear.
1: All right. So, Jay, uh, perhaps uh, some of the biggest news of the week, because it's been a week filled with large news, was that news of Jerry Falwell Jr., who uh, was either paying or being extorted by his pool guy. And I won't ask if uh, at the Rosen Estate in uh, Beverly Hills, you have a pool. Um, I don't want to know, but uh, he has a pool and the pool guy was apparently stooking Mrs. Falwell. And uh, Jerry apparently liked to watch. So he liked to watch. He he obviously has seen being there. He knows what it's like. And um, what, what more can you say? And he, any comments from a Hollywood screenwriter perspective?
0: You can just tell everyone that I got the Cheshire grin on my face.
1: Uh, you think that would make a good movie line? Yeah, I think so. I think it would be a really good movie right. line. So, uh, well, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, he was actually able to draw compliance lessons from this um, with apparently a straight face. Um, not quite sure how he did it, but he did. And if you go to his site on Radical Compliance, you will see a a very interesting article on Jerry Falwell Jr. and CEO Oversight. And as he begins his piece, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And compliance professionals witnessed that again this week amid a Liberty University sex scandal. And I think we're still PG-13 saying the word sex. Scandal's
0: the problem.
1: Um, the, okay. Uh, uh, we've we've detailed the basic facts. Um, you know, the pool guy is a well-worn trope in Hollywood and in other areas of Southern California that make other types of movies uh, that are not PG-13. Okay, stay on the rails, but man.
0: Stay, stay with it. Stay <laughs> with it, Tom.
1: But the uh, the mat was able to draw uh, – some compliance and, more importantly, corporate governance lessons. And what he talked about was when you have an outsized personality uh, for a CEO and they go wild. And he pointed to Steve Wynn, Wynn Resorts, uh, Al Dunlap, Chainsaw Al, uh, Elon Musk, or perhaps even President Trump. And how do you, you know, keep them under control? Well, in the corporate world, that's the function of the board of directors. And uh, you have to have a board with a diversity of perspectives, women, minorities, more varied career experience, not the friends of the CEO. Um, you have to have a board that acts as a counterweight to the CEO. I once uh, had Joe Howell say that the job of the board was to put sand in the shoes of senior executives and to frankly be a pain in the wazoo. Uh, note that uh, PG-13 word. And then uh, this means, also means more responsibility for nominating in corporate governance committees. So uh, CEO Oversight, I'm sure Matt did not intend that as a uh, double entendre. Um, but I'm going to stick with I like to watch. Any thoughts uh, from sunny Southern California, Jay?
0: Moving on. Uh, we're going to take a look at first of two from the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. This comes to us from banking Sun. Bank regulators clarify due diligence requirements for politically exposed persons. Five agencies say in a joint statement that the level of risk associated with politically exposed individuals varies. Banks and financial institutions need to assess money laundering risks and conduct appropriate due diligence when dealing with foreign public officials and their families or associates. People who are considered politically exposed may pose higher risks Because their funds may be the proceeds of corruption or other illicit activities, banking regulators said in a joint statement. The agencies added, however, that the risks associated with politically exposed individuals vary, and not all of them are automatically higher risks. The agencies don't include U.S. public officials in the politically exposed persons category. The risk depends on facts and circumstances specific to the customer relationship said the statement, which was issued Friday by the Federal Reserve Board, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp., U.S. Treasury Department's FinCEN, which is Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, the National Credit Union Administration, and the Office of the Comptroller of Currency. For instance, a politically exposed individual who has a limited transaction volume and a low-dollar deposit account with a bank and whose source of funds is known and legitimate Could be characterized as a lower risk according to the statement. The agencies also clarified that there are no regulatory requirements or expectations financial institutions to have unique additional due diligence steps for clients who are considered politically exposed. But they said the banks are required to quote identify and report suspicious activity, including transactions that may involve proceeds of corruption. The notice comes as banking regulators aim to address concerns that the banking industry, that compliance with Bank Secrecy Act due diligence requirements have become overly burdensome and costly. This has led to many banks closing high-risk accounts. So that's what we've got from the U.S. Treasury.
1: So Jay from Dylan Tokar, our good friend and colleague also at the Risk and Compliance Journal, a really interesting article about a private-public partnership to help fight money laundering, uh, largely centered in Europe, but uh, it is where banks are partnering with governments to, and teaming up to create information-sharing partnerships that facilitate a two-way dialogue on sp- suspected financial crimes. The parties share information on specific cases or on types of potential criminal activity they're seeing, and this allows for more effective screening of uh, suspicious activities This was, I really thought, an interesting uh, uh, um, development and really shows that uh, you can be creative and you can work together. Uh, Many corporations are, are, you know, afraid to do something like this because they feel like it would open the kimono to the government. But I think with uh, uh, specific protections around it, certainly the Europeans have made it work and they've signed up uh, five banks Nordic banks, essentially, uh, to work with uh, uh, the government in the Netherlands. Also, a country that has had success with this is Australia. Uh, the Fintel Alliance um, in Australia is uh, working with banks and the government to share more infra- information. So an interesting way for a public partner, public-private partner, public partnership to try to share real-time information on suspicious activities that hopefully can be a model um,
0: going forward. So uh, next up, we've got something from our good friend Mike Volkov in his blog. And uh, unfortunately, somebody who's a conservative uh, person is also making the news again. Steve Bannon and three defendants indicted for $25 We Build the Wall fraud scheme. In a surprise announcement, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the SDNY Southern District of New York announced that Steve Bannon, Brian Koflage, Andrew Bottolato, and Timothy Shea were indicted for defrauding hundreds of thousands of donors in response to the We Build the Wall online fundraising campaign. The indictment charges the defendants in defrauding donors for more than $25 million. All four defendants were charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and conspiracy to engage in money laundering. You're going to love this one, Tom. In an ironic twist, you can't make this stuff up, the case was investigated by the United States Postal Inspection Services, and the defendants were arrested by USPIS's agents. To hide the scheme, the defendants not only lied to donors, they created sham invoices and accounts to launder donations and cover up financial transactions. The scheme was launched in December of 2018 when the defendants launched a website for an online, online crowdfunding campaign. The website included an insurance that hundred percent of your donations would be given to the government for the construction of a wall. And here's the kicker, and if the campaign could not attain its goal, it would quote, refund every single penny, unquote. Koflaj is quoted as repeatedly and falsely stating that the, to the public that he would not take a penny in salary. Within the first week, the site raised 17 million, and based on the success, the campaign drew scrutiny, including questions concerning Colfedge's background. Later in December 2018, the crowdfunding website suspended the campaign, which at that time had raised 20 million. Colflage enlisted Bannon and Bottolato to lead a campaign, and together they had already maintained and operated a nonprofit organization to promote economic nationalism and American sovereignty. They created a new nonprofit, We Build the Wall Inc., to which they proposed to transfer the money raised on the crowdfunding website. Starting in 2019, the defendants misled donors and the crowdfunding website promising them 100% of the funds would be used for construction of the wall. These false representations were made in solicitations, public statements, social media posts, and press appearances by Colfage and Bannon. To reinforce these false representations, the defendants adopted bylaws for the nonprofit organization that contained false representations that none of the defendants could or would receive any compensation. All four of the defendants worked together to misappropriate hundreds of thousands of dollars. Kolfash took in more than 350000 for personal use, including home renovations, payments for a boat, a luxury SUV, jewelry, and cosmetic surgeries. Bannon received over a million from the We Build the Wall through a nonprofit organization under his control, which he used for his own personal purposes. So can you imagine that? a former counselor and campaign official from the president, evolved in fraud. Go figure.
1: Jay, um, we take a little bit different turn here and go with an article from our friend Francine McKenna, uh, who's left Market Watch and has her own commentary now called The Dig. And she takes a look at the Palantir S1. That's the document that companies file when they want to go IPO. And uh, she um, doesn't uh, take a reference from the movie industry. Um, I guess I should first ask Jay, have you ever been to Lake Wobegon?
0: I've listened. Actually, I saw Garrison keeler do it live at the Hollywood Bowl. So I was in the space that was occupied by Lake Wobegon.
1: Well, uh, was it, uh, were the citizen, particularly the children of Lake Wobegon, better looking and above average?
0: They were, they were gifted and bright.
1: Wow. Well, uh, that's what uh, Francine used as a reference for her review of the Palantir S1 uh, because uh, apparently Ernst & Young's IPO clients are like the citizens of Lake Wobegon. And apparently, uh, r- rather, in none of the company's 2019 IPO clients, including WeWork, disclosed any material weaknesses and internal controls uh, in reporting their S1s. So uh, 20% of other audit clients from the other big four uh, have uh, some management disclosures of ICFR mater- uh, material weaknesses, but not Ernst & Young. So apparently all of their clients are, are at some some point were in Lake Wobegon. They may have matriculated elsewhere. And uh, but what I found uh, either interesting or troubling was Palantir said – to investors. We are currently not required to comply with the SEC rules that implement Section 404 of Sarbanes-Oxley, and therefore are not required to make a formal assessment of our effectiveness of our internal controls over financial reporting. As a public company, we will be required to provide an annual management report on the effectiveness of our internal controls over financial reporting, commencing with our second annual Form 10-K. Our independent registered public accounting firm, is not required to attest to the effectiveness of internal controls over financial reporting until after we are no longer an emerging growth company. So uh, we have a a potential billion-dollar IPO uh, that claims it's an emerging growth company, and uh, it's not going to tell us about its internal controls, or more importantly, material weaknesses thereof. And this is, I think, a big hole. Uh, They have, I think, about 24 months to, to tell us And unfortunately, um, as we now know from the Steve Bannon indictment, a lot of bad things can happen in 24 months. So, um, but perhaps like the children of uh, Lake Wobegon, Palantir is uh, stronger, better looking, and above average. So, Jay, the Washington football club seems to be in a near-death spiral. And I thought it took an even worse turn this week. What were your thoughts? And remember, listeners, PG for this episode.
0: Right. So this is some continuing reporting that uh, Will Hobson, Beth Reinhardt, Liz Clark, and Dalton Bennett have been chronicling um, from the Washington Post, uh, ending a year-long investigation and two big stories, one last month, one this month. Um, It's about just 18 pages of gory details that I can go through that are just... Um, really sad and humiliating, but let me give you the crux of what this situation is and why it made the papers this week. lewd cheerleader videos, sexist rules ex employees to cry washington's NFL team workplace in the beauties on the beach, an official video chronicling the making of the washington NFL team's two thousand and eight cheerleader swimsuit calendar. women frolic in the sand, rave about their custom bikinis and praise a photographer for putting them at ease in a setting where sometimes only a strategically placed prop or tightly framed shot shielded otherwise bare anatomy. What the cheerleaders didn't know was that another video, intended strictly for private use, would be produced using the same footage from the shoot. The lewd outtakes were what Larry Michael, then the team's lead broadcaster and senior vice president, referred to as, quote, the good bits, unquote, or, quote, the good parts, unquote, according to Brad Baker, a former member of his staff. The request for the unofficial cheerleader video came after a routine production meeting in 2008. According to Baker, a former production manager in the team's broadcast department, <clears throat> excuse me, the cheerleaders recently had returned from a calendar shoot in Aruba. The 10-minute outtakes video was was created on June 9, 2008, according to metadata on the video file. It and a promotional video broadcast by the team share what appeared to be identical frames. It's almost appalling, but perhaps not surprising, that the Washington Football Organization would produce these highly sexualized videos without the knowledge of consent of the women featured said Lisa J. Banks, a partner in the D.C. firm Katz, Marshall, and Banks, which specializes in civil rights, employment, and sexual harassment law. The videos appear to have been created to serve no other purpose than to satisfy the prurient interest of the team's executive leadership. Snyder and the team, of course, provided no comment after they were given repeated opportunities to respond. The six-paragraph statement Snyder released Wednesday began The behaviors described in the Washington Post's latest story has no place in our franchise or society. While I was unaware of these allegations until they surfaced in the media, I take full responsibility for the culture of our organization. In response to last month's Post report detailing allegations of widespread harassment in the team's front office, Snyder publicly stated that such behavior has no place in their franchise and had hired a law firm to set new employee standards. But interviews with more than 100 current and former employees and a review of internal company documents and other records show that in 21 years of ownership, Snyder has presided over, presided over an organization in which women say they've been marginalized, discriminated against, and exploited. 25 women, most of them speaking on the condition of anonymity because of non-disclosure agreements or fear of reprisal, told the Post that they experienced sexual harassment while working for the team. They described male bosses, colleagues, and players commenting on their bodies and clothing, incorporating sexual innuendo into the workplace conversation, and making unwanted advances in in person or via email. Many said that they were motivated to speak out because they were angered by Snyder's comments after the Post report last month. Shortly after reporting for their first day of work at team headquarters in Ashburn, Virginia, many employees said that they had learned several unwritten rules. Always call the owner, Mr. Snyder or sir, never Dan, never look him in the eyes. And if he comes walking your way, turn around and head the other direction. Brittany Peretti, a DC area marketing exec who was the team's community charitable programs head from 2007 to 2012, said she became so angry and depressed during her time with the team that the family suggested an intervention. Peretti was among 12 former team employees who have retained Lisa banks, as we mentioned before, a partner in the D.C. firm of Katz, Marshall, and Banks. A workplace culture this toxic and pervasive at the highest levels of the organization simply cannot exist without the knowledge and the the encouragement of its owner, said Banks, whose firm represented Palo Alto University professor Christine Blasey Ford when she went public in 2018 with accusations of sexual assault against then Supreme Court nominee Brett M. Kavanaugh. So if it's attracted the scrutiny of the attorney who worked with Blasey Ford, I think there's definitely smoke where there's fire. And I am just amazed that Snyder is still hanging on to control of this team. What do you say, Tom?
1: I like to watch. It's becoming a new catchphrase. Although here we have videos and money shots, so perhaps it's to a new level. Well, AML is a little less purient. I would say we've dropped back to PG or perhaps even a G rating here. So uh, you might be able to bring the kids back in, but uh, we have an article from um, uh, Martin Woods over on Compliance Week. And he has been in the AML space for uh, a fairly lengthy period of time, r- literally from the uh, 1980s. And he has some critiques of uh, consultants in this space and, uh, I think this needs to be read for everyone who provides a service in not only the AML space, but also the compliance space. Because he said typically when he would ask for a report or an assessment of his compliance program around AML, um, he would get a lengthy report back of all the failures and um, then with suggested additional services that that consultant could provide. And he said that that really didn't help him because he needed to know what he had done right in addition to what gaps there were. And in terms of potential failures, it was almost infinitesimal. But the point was, did the program he had in place allow him to manage uh, risks? And so um, he he frankly got tired of consultants telling him his program was uh, not very good and then offering. Uh, immediately thereafter to fix it for an additional fee. So I thought that that was really something that every compliance consultant needs to think about. When you give a report, uh, what are you uh, delivering? Certainly, if there's a gap, you need to uh, explain it. But uh, you don't have to kind of report every negativism. You have to give people the chance to uh, figure out a way to uh, manage that risk going forward.
0: So next up, we've got a story that comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. This is from a group of attorneys at Fenwick West: David Bell, Elizabeth Gartland, and Scott Spector. And we talk about the McDonald's clawback suit, which I think was in our uh, crosshairs either last week or the week before. For those of you who missed it, McDonald's Corporation has joined a growing list of companies that have taken action to forfeit unpaid compensation or demand repayment of comp previously paid to a former CEO, including equity awards or proceeds from the sale of awards and pursuant to the company clawback policies. The complaint against the former CEO serves as a cautionary reminder to companies and boards that a clawback situation can heighten a company's litigation exposure trigger embarrassing and potentially damaging publicity and raise question about the adequacies of the board's governance. The situation comes at a significant cost of having to litigate to obtain repayment of severance and equity awards paid to the CEO upon his termination of employment. Here's a quick summary of the complaint. In November 2019, McDonald's announced that CEO Easterbrook's termination following the board's determination that he violated company policy and demonstrated poor judgment involving a non-physical consensual relationship with an employee with an employer, employment employee. Sorry, the complaint states that in July 2020, McDonald's received an anonymous tip alleging that a different McDonald's employee engaged in a similar sexual relationship with Estabrook. An internal investigation in the new allegation discovered photographic evidence that while he was CEO, he had engaged in a physical relationship not only with the employee discussed in the anonymous report, but with several others. A second investigation began, and that also showed that Easterbrook approved a special discretionary grant of restricted stock worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to the second employee shortly after the first encounter and within days upon the 2nd. McDonald's was not aware of this new evidence of improper contact. In November in 2019, a separation agreement was negotiated and approved after deliberation by the board prior to their awareness of the new information. Now they have filed a complaint that seeks to recoup severance payments and benefits paid to Easterbrook as CEO. Key takeaways. The takeaway from McDonald's complaint is that a clawback situation, especially after the board has finished an initial investigation, which leads to payment of benefits to a departing executive and a determination that such executive should not be terminated for cause is potentially extremely embarrassing to the company and the board and will likely result in millions of dollars of legal fees. Two, if a company or board elects to conduct an investigation especially of allegations with respect to the integrity of the CEO it should ensure that the investigation is thorough and takes into consideration all relevant evidence and three the board should also strongly consider retaining outside legal counsel who can help provide the requisite objectivity and protect against shareholder challenges to the board's decision In addition, McDonald's case raises the relatively rare scenario where a board is alleging fraudulent statements made by an executive in the course of the investigation itself. These facts will likely provide ample support to institutional investors as they continue to seek expanded adoption and the use of clawback tools as well as financial matters typically contemplated by clawback. So just a real absolute mix in uh, Oak Brook, Illinois. And... uh, for this to be playing out in in the press really looks bad for McDonald's. I like to watch. So, Tom, those are our eight stories for the week. Um, As we are at the end of August, we're coming up on part four of The Compliance Life. What do you and Louis Sapperman speak about this week?
1: Jay, this has been a great series with uh, Louis. And this week we took a look at the CCO down the road. I hope uh, everyone will check out Louis's a four-part podcast series. It's a great story, and I think uh, everyone uh, can learn something and relate to it uh, as well. Lewis is a very passionate guy, and he's got a lot to say. On the um, compliance and coronavirus, I had a week of Exeger, and I was able to visit with Brandon Daniels on data management, data security, moving out of COVID-19, CEO Michael Berber on the impact of MA, IPOs, and SPACs. That's something compliance practitioners are going to need to uh, become familiar with. And then Anna Osborne on uh, managed services and outsourced compliance. Over on uh, thirty-one days to a more effective compliance program, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. This week we looked at boards and succession planning on Monday. On Tuesday, incorporating compliance strategy into long-term board planning on Wednesday. Areas of board inquiry. Thursday, I had special guests. Vin Deciani, CEO and founder of AMI, on three specific board inquiries. And Friday, I have a list of 20 questions every uh, board should ask of their compliance program. Uh, Next month, we're going to take a look at internal controls or watch for that uh, to premiere on Tuesday, September 1st. Uh, Jay and I would once again urge you to join us at Converge 20. It's going to be one of the top compliance events around. It's uh, registration and information are linked to in the show notes. And can I mention, Jay,
0: the price, that's the best part? Is it free? It is free. So there is no excuse not for you to join with myself and Tom and our fellow compliance uh, colleagues at Converge 20. So, Tom, uh, it seems we say this every week, there's another new property on the Compliance Podcast Network. Which one of our friends is joining us now?
1: So, long overdue, and it took me a while to get him moving, but he did get moving. He's got a bunch of episodes in the can. Scott Moritz, uh, well-known in the compliance field. Uh, he's currently at uh, FTI Managing Director at FTI Consulting. He a, a basically has a, po- a podcast where true crime meets compliance. It's fraud, each strategy. His first episode premiered this week, and he talked to Sharon Watkins, the Enron whistleblower, about why whistleblowers are even more important some 20 years later uh, or 19 and a half years later after she blew the whistle uh, on Enron. So check that out. Scott's got some great episodes in the can. I think he's going to roll them out every two weeks. So uh, expect a couple of uh, months, and uh, welcome Scott and a great, great addition to the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: Great, great to have another compliance voice out there, uh, Scott. So welcome. So, Tom, it's been a busy week. Uh, We are slowly marching our way up to next Monday, August 31st. We will celebrate your 500th anniversary episode. What did you share with our listeners this week?
1: Well, Jay, uh, I put together a project that I've been thinking about for some time, and I got five of the top compliance commentators around to take a look at the last 10 years of compliance from their perspective. Um, You were part of that group, but also included Mike Bolkoff looking at FCPA enforcement changes. Matt Kelly uh, reviewed things from the perspective of a business journalist and how things are reported. Jonathan Armstrong took a look at changes in data protection, data privacy, GDPR, UK Bribery Act, and of course, the UK Modern Slavery Law. Uh, Jonathan Marks talked about how changes in internal audit, both mirrored and even foreshadowed many of the changes he's seen in compliance. And you took a look at uh, compliance from your perspective as a business development specialist and what you saw on the compliance side of things sitting across the table and talking to and selling products and services so it's, uh, I did uh, a blog post and a podcast every day on these topics. Uh, this series, special series leading up to the 500th episode w- has been extraordinarily popular. Uh, I can't tell you the number of people who have told me how much they enjoyed it. They enjoyed having the top commentators literally in one week talk about a retrospective as we move into the third decade of this year. So it seemed to be timely. It seemed to be something that everyone really enjoyed. Obviously, the commentators were first rate. There are people who've been in uh, uh, in Matt's case, a journalist for 25 years. Jonathan's case, an internal auditor for 30 years. Mike's case, a lawyer for 40 years. Uh, you know, you've been in BD for, I guess, 15 years, maybe. Uh, I've been in compliance uh, for 13 years. So um, and Jonathan's been in data privacy literally forever, but he's been a lawyer for about 25 or 30 years. So a lot of uh, experience, a lot of wisdom, a lot of fun. Uh, I hope that I can um, uphold the honor of the group. When my episode goes up on Monday, I have a special guest host, Greg Greenberg. Greg's the general manager of the C2 Radio Network, but more importantly, he was an interviewer for Kramer. So he knows how to interview, and he he interviewed me, and we took a look back at some of the top compliance issues that I identified over the past ten years or so. I looked at some of the numbers of top episodes I looked at uh some of my favorite guests uh people I just really enjoyed talking to, how some of those podcasts some of those individual podcasts led to the entire series, and kind of reflected on how I got from there to here and a few lessons I've learned uh, from doing podcasts. So I hope I can uh, uphold the honor in the 500th. It's been something I've been looking forward to for quite some time and uh, obviously pointing towards that with this series. Maybe uh, what's your perspective in in having participated in and listened to some of these other podcasts?
0: Well, it's, uh, it's interesting being on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. And uh, you know, it allowed each of us, you know, we, Frequently quote from the folks who spoke this week, you know, there's usually something on our website uh, on the podcast from Mike Volkov weekly and from Matt Kelly. So I think it was uh, interesting to give each other a little bit more um, just room to uh, an an expanse to talk about our ideas and articulate where we've been and where we think we're going to. So I know I was uh, appreciative to be included in this group of five. And um, hope we can do it again. And uh, as I said, looking forward to Monday, Um, not to put a quash on the celebration, but I just wanted to turn our heavy hearts to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and just to once again be having a conversation about a situation that should never happen in the first place. And our thoughts go out. But we need more than thoughts. We need action. And uh, this is something that I'm sorry to have to bring up. So on behalf of Tom Fox, waiting for his 500th episode on Monday, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 220 for the week ending August 28th, 2020, the I Like to Watch edition. As always, we hope you will be safe. We wish you good health and we look forward to speaking with you in the following week.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at at Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox at TFox at TFoxlaw.com. We've also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message. If you'd like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again.